We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. I, I see a lot of new faces, so let me say welcome. Um, if you are visiting with us and you'd like to uh, get uh, in contact with us, find out a little bit more about um, who we are as a church, find out about our ministries, you can um, text the following number, 816-448-8178. Just text the word welcome to that number. Uh, that is, again, 816-448-8178. Uh, that is in lieu of the, the little card that you would typically fill out in exchange for a coffee mug. Um, we're, we're not doing that in this time for obvious reasons. And so uh, that text-in number is basically how you can get in contact with us, find out about our ministries, community groups to get uh, plugged in with, and uh, anything else. So, uh, And on that note, if you have been visiting Emmaus for a while and you're interested in uh, membership, in um, uh, joining Emmaus or finding out a little bit more about how we do membership or maybe even why we do membership. Um, our membership weekend is coming up the second week in September. That is the first step in the membership process if you're planning on joining Emmaus, but it's also just an informational weekend if you're um, curious about how we do membership, why we do membership, and you can sign up for that on our website at EmmausKC.com. And uh, that's where you will be able to sign up for that weekend. Uh, I'm really excited to finish this, um, this book together. And uh, so on that note, I'm going to pray. Uh, actually, I'm going to read the passage first, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in together. So we're in Colossians chapter 4, finishing this series through Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. These are the words of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the gospel to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature 
fully assured in all the wisdom of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the children in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our triune God, we thank you for this morning that we have to gather as your people. We love you. We come here by your unbidding to worship you. You have redeemed us. Father, you sent your son to purchase us with blood. You sent your spirit to seal us in love. And you are calling the nations to yourself to come and worship you. And so we come. And not only us, Lord, but many other churches. For we, your people here, are a part of the one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We worship you along with Francesco and Claudia Arco and the saints at Jesus Encounter in Geneva, Italy. We worship you along with Darian and the saints in North Africa. We worship you along with Mariella and the saints in East Asia. We worship you along with Glenn and Carrie Higgins and the saints at City Center Baptist Church in Seattle. And Corey and Jamie Chaplin and the saints at Mount Hope Church in Bristol, Rhode Island. And Drake and Allie Osborne and the saints at Grace Church in Waco, Texas. And Michael and Christy Kenyon and the saints at First Baptist Church of St. Clair and on and on. Lord, we pray that you would bless these brothers and sisters with whom we partner for the advance of your gospel. As they gather before your throne to worship you, some of them even in this very moment. Bless and encourage them with endurance. Bless also your the, the reading and preaching of your word at the churches here in our own region. Lord, we pray that you would bless the people at Faith Community Church. Bless the people at Redeemer Fellowship. Bless the people at Liberty Baptist Church. Bless your people at Wernal Road Baptist Church and Northland Baptist Church and everywhere else where your word is read and proclaimed. Build up, Lord Jesus, your body. Advance your gospel. Lay claim to what is rightly yours, which is every square inch of every city in the world. And be with us here now as we continue to worship you by submitting ourselves under your preached word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Before I get started, let me mention two other things that I, I promised that I would not forget to mention, and here I have. Uh, after the service is over, if you would, please try to make sure that your kids are not running near the street. My kids do it every week, um, but we have cars that are trying to leave, and so make sure that they're not running near the street. We have this massive open field. So kids, listen, this is a charge from Pastor Sam. Don't run near the, the, near the streets after the service. Um, and then secondly, uh, I know it's, it doesn't look like it, but we actually have a lot of pa parking in the back behind the building. So, um, so try uh, next week to, to um, park there before we start to, to 
fill up this um, road here, and we'll have some, some uh, volunteers directing traffic as well beginning next week. So, all right. Now I'll try to mentally go back to the passage uh, I just read. I, I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I was not prepared for the kind of week in the study uh, that I had this week. I was expecting a pretty innocuous passage, um, a passage that, that just sort of neatly buttoned up this epistle so we could uh, close off uh, the, a, a really enriching series and just move on to the next thing. And that might have been what you guys have expected as well. That might have been what you actually were thinking when we were reading this passage. And yet I was confronted with one of the most encouraging and convicting passages, uh, convicting weeks of the study that I have had in a very long time. I've been challenged this week. My affection for you all and my love for pastoral ministry has been reignited this week in a way that I didn't even know was, was dwindling uh, until it was reignited. And the reason why that is so important and why I think that's a benefit to all of us and not just the pastors here is that within the community of Christ's saints, zeal for godliness is contagious. Within Christ's church, zeal for godliness is contagious. Love for Christ and love for His people spreads from one person to another. So when you are loved by someone who is loving Christ, it makes you want to love Jesus more. It makes you want to love others more. So that's what I've been praying for this week. I've been praying that the Lord would fill me with the kind of pastoral affection for you that we see in Paul and Epaphras and his fellow ministers in this passage, that God would fill me with that kind of affection for you and that you would catch it, that that zeal would spread among the body. This passage is divided up neatly into two sections. First, Paul offers his final exhortations to the Colossians. Then he offers his final encouragement. So let's begin with verse 2 and the beginning of Paul's final exhortations. He says to verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. One of the beautiful things about the book of Colossians is its symmetry. The whole thing holds together. And so Paul doesn't just introduce themes at random, but rather he weaves them together to hold tightly throughout the whole letter. And two of these twin themes in the book of Colossians are the themes of prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and gratitude. Entreating God and being grateful for His providential dealings with us. You cannot be resentful when you're thankful. That's why this is so important. You cannot be resentful while you're thankful. And you can't also be thankful while you are resentful. And so Paul says to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He says to continue steadfastly in prayer, which means this should be a habitual, ever-present reality in our lives, an ever-present practice. And as I've been meditating on it this week, I, I, think, I think the reason why this command is so important for us to obey is the simple fact that prayer functions to reorient us to reality. It grounds us in reality. Now this is, this is counterintuitive because 
We have come to believe erroneously that spiritual things like prayer are somehow breaks from reality. Right? We've come to believe that prayer is an escape from reality. And that reality is summed up entirely in things like making money and paying bills and arguing about politics and changing diapers and taking out the trash. That stuff, we have come to believe, is real life. And then the religious things like prayer or this weekly gathering are sort of holidays, so to speak, from the real things in life. And yet that is just not true, brothers and sisters. When we pray, we are not taking a break from reality. We are grounding ourselves in reality. We are grounding ourselves in reality so that we can make our way through this fallen world, this funhouse uh, hall of mirrors, without being tricked into thinking that God is an intruder. We are catechized. We are conditioned to think that God is irrelevant for most things in life. And that there's this little sliver of our lives where things like prayer and weekly gatherings for worship fits in. But that is not true. When we pray, we are reminding ourselves of that which is most true. Which is that things eternal are more important than temporal things. Which is that God is not in irrelevancy. He is the most relevant, most practical reality in our lives, prayer brings the reality of God's rule into the imaginary assumption that God is irrelevant. So this charge to pr pray continuously, steadfastly, being watchful in it with prayer is so important. He goes on in verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So first we saw that prayer, uh, Paul broadly uh, exhorted the, the Colossians to pray generally, but now he gets more specific. He says, pray for us, meaning Paul and his fellow ministers, many of whom we're about to be introduced to. Pray for us. He's saying, as you pray, pray for me. Paul humbly asks for prayer from the Colossians. Now just think about this. These Colossians, these are the very same Colossians who are not as mature or stable or faithful as Paul. These are the very same Colossians who were being enticed into Christless philosophy. And Paul had to correct them with this letter. Paul is writing to Christians who are less developed and grown spiritually, and yet he wants their prayer. He wants for them to pray for him. He humbly asks them for prayer. Now, we may be surprised by this because we may be surprised to see Paul asking for prayer for things like opening the door for the opportunity to preach the gospel to more people or giving me wisdom to know how I ought to speak in each situation. That may be surprising because we tend to think that Paul is this infinitely resourceful theological superstar who doesn't need doors to open because he just opens doors himself. And he doesn't need wisdom to know how he ought to speak because we think of Paul as this figure who just knows how he ought to speak all the time, every moment, and every occasion. Yet he's a human being. And this is so important. Paul is just 
unmotivated by a desire to perpetuate some persona of perfection. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care about that image. He just does not care to maintain the impression of unwavering strength. You know why? It's because he wants actual strength, not pretend strength. So rather than trying to perpetuate this persona of, of infinite resourcefulness where he doesn't actually need prayer, he wants actual strength from God. He is greedy to get as many people as he can to pray for him. He's not dissuaded. He's not dissuaded by their spiritual immaturity to ask them for prayer because he knows who answers prayer. And the answer of prayer does not depend on our spiritual maturity. It's God who answers prayer. So he is greedy to get as many people in his corner as possible to ask for prayer. And he's asking for prayer for boldness to declare the mysteries of Christ. And this mystery is, of course, the same mystery that he spoke of in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the gospel. It's this mystery that was hidden but has been revealed that Gentiles now may participate in the covenant family of God. And we are brought in by virtue of the person and work of Christ. His life for us. His death for us. His burial for us. His resurrection for us. And His ascension for us. That's how we are brought into this covenant family. That's how we're brought from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It is when our record of debt, the penalty that stood against us with its legal demands, Colossians 2 says, has been set aside and nailed to the cross. So we're, by virtue of and through the person and work of Christ, we are brought into this covenant family. And this is the mystery of Christ that Paul says, on account of it, on account of this mystery of Christ, he is in prison. What does that mean? On account of the gospel, he is in prison. Well, at the bare minimum, it simply means that Paul wound up in prison for speaking the gospel. You can see this in, in Acts, the book of Acts. Paul preaches the gospel, and his consistent preaching of the gospel winds him up in prison. But it's also the case that Paul's imprisonment actually serves the gospel. When, when we read that on account of which I am in prison, it's not just he wound up in prison because he's preaching the gospel, but it's also that his imprisonment serves the gospel. That is, not only is the gospel the cause of Paul's imprisonment, it's also the purpose of Paul's imprisonment. Well, how is that the case? Well, it's not simply the case that he's preaching the gospel to fellow prisoners and guards, though that is the case. But it's also this. Think about this. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written while Paul was in prison. <laughs> were it not for Paul's imprisonment, we may not have these words, these books. So prison, in other words, was God's providential writing leave. Him imposing on Paul a writing leave so that he could produce some of the most important words ever written. In prison, he declares the mystery of Christ. And it is this mystery that Paul is eager to declare to more and more people. He wants more doors open to speak the truth to more people with clarity and conviction. 
And in this prayer request, we see in Paul the same motivation that we saw in chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. We see in Paul the true heart of a pastor. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, he says, I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul wants to give his life Making others mature in Christ. Presenting them mature in Christ. And so he works hard at this. He works diligently at this. And yet it's not his energy. It's Christ's energy within him. And Paul believes that this energy comes to him, the energy of Christ comes to him in part by, in part, as an answer to the prayer request of others. So when Paul closes this epistle by asking for prayer, for boldness to declare the mysteries of Christ for open doors, he is asking for the Colossians to participate in this. He wants for their prayer request to be granted, their prayer request for energy to declare the gospel to more and more people. He wants to keep spending himself to present others mature in Christ. And that energy from Christ comes in part as an answer to prayer from others. He continues on in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to speak. This is so appropriate because... Once we start to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, as we saw in chapter 3, once we start to, to set our minds on Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we will start to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which means that we make the best use of the time. <laughs> oh, how we could enumerate the ways in which we often fail to walk in wisdom toward outsiders or the ways in which we waste our time. And so the challenge is to, to look to this charge, brothers and sisters, and see the eternally minded urgency. Let us take this charge and use it to interrogate our lives. How do we walk toward outsiders? How do we conduct ourselves at work or online or at the grocery store? Do we conduct ourselves in a way that lends our conversations and relationships to gospel proclamation? How do we use our time? How many hours do we spend on social media? What kind of entertainment are we filling our time with? And do these habits harmonize with the command to make the best use of the time? Don't shrink back, brothers and sisters. Don't shrink back from interrogating your life habits. It matters too much. Our time here is short, so let us not waste it. Let us have the kind of urgency that insists on walking in wisdom towards outsiders. That is, not passively or thoughtlessly, but rather intentionally. And let us make the best use of the time. Paul says to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's words here remind us that the content of our language is not the only thing that matters. The what 
of our speech. It's not just the what of our speech, but also the how of our speech that matters. Now, this doesn't mean that our words will never offend people. This same Paul who's writing this said a lot of things that offended people. So it doesn't mean that our speech will never offend people. Speaking sanity in an insane world cannot happen without offense. But it does mean that we should labor to ensure that what people are offended by is the scandal of the gospel and not our tone. Shame on us if our tasteless and graceless manner of speaking offends our hearers before the gospel gets the chance to. Right? If, if they're going to get offended, we want them to get offended by the scandal of the gospel and not our tone. Now, this is just the opposite. This, this speaking, uh, let, letting our speech be always gracious and seasoned with salt is the opposite of owning the other side with stale memes or pithy one-liners. But it does also mean drenching your words with the thick, creamy sauce of political correctness. Right? Salt, at its best, brings out and highlights the natural flavor of a food. So speech about the gospel that is seasoned with salt is speech that complements and highlights this gracious message of the gospel, which has an edge to it. It does offend people. So speaking graciously, seasoned with salt, is speaking in a way that presents the gospel to people, where they're not hindered by the way that we're talking or our tone or our attitude. It's a way that presents the gospel to them compellingly and it shows them the truth of the gospel which has edges to it. So on the one hand, we must not offend the gospel before the uh, we must not offend our hearers before the gospel gets the chance to. And on the other hand, we must not mute the offense of the gospel with layers and layers of caveats. Rather, we should let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. So those are Paul's final exhortations to the Colossians. He now closes with some final encouragements. And in this passage, the remainder of our text, Paul mentions 11 names. And it could be very tempting for us to just skip through these names without reflecting on any of them. But they each instruct us and encourage us and challenge us in our faith. And so, I want to quickly move through this passage and consider these figures for our encouragement. Let's begin in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Notice Tychicus, this carrier letter is sent by Paul so that he can update the Colossians on Paul's welfare. And Paul insists that this update, this, this report of Paul's welfare is intended to encourage the Colossians. And we've talked about this before, this marvelous truth that in God's infinite wisdom and goodness, He has weaved a web of interconnected relationships with the church such that God encourages His people through the encouragement of His people. So God encourages one group of believers through some believers, and then the report of that encouragement reaches our ears, and we are encouraged by it. And then the report of our encouragement reaches back to their ears, and they are encouraged by it. It's marvelous. 
And so, in this passage, Tychicus, someone Paul is now introducing to the Colossians, he doesn't know these believers, Paul is introducing Tychicus to them by sending him there. He is now being woven into this relational web. This last week, a member of my community group mentioned that what the universal church means is that in every city he goes, he has family. That's true. If there are believers in a city, you have family. And I hope, brothers and sisters who, are, who have come recently from out of town, I hope you feel that. I hope you recognize that. That we are united in a profound way. You have family here. Family you've never met. Verse 9, he continues, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. This is incredible. Why? Because Onesimus is not just some random member from the Colossian church who's visiting Paul in Rome. You can read about his story in Paul's letter to Philemon, but Onesimus was a slave of a Colossian Christian named Philemon. Onesimus had committed some kind of wrong against Philemon, and so he fled. He ran away. So he's a fugitive and a runaway slave. And somewhere in the course of events, Onesimus becomes a Christian, and he's transformed and he becomes a partner with Paul. He, he, he partners up with Paul and is an encouragement and a servant of Paul. And so eventually Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae, carrying with him a letter to Philemon, his previous master. And this letter is urging Philemon to reconcile and forgive and receive Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a fellow and beloved brother in the faith. Now, it's unclear from this passage in Colossians if Colossians is written after Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled or before. It's unclear. But I suspect from several clues internally from both letters that they were written at the same time. And if that's the case, it means this description of Onesimus as our faithful beloved brother is Paul's encouragement to the whole Colossian church that mirrors his encouragement to Philemon. In other words, Philemon and Tychicus are coming to this whole region carrying several letters with them. One broadly to the church at Colossae and one personal letter written to Onesimus' previous master. And thus, this message to the whole Colossian church, this phrase, who is one of you, this description of Onesimus as a beloved and faithful brother is Paul's way to encourage the open arms, not just of Philemon, but of the whole community. It's his way of saying, listen, regardless of the reputation Onesimus has as a useless runaway slave, that's not his identity. That is not his identity anymore. He is a faithful and beloved brother. So welcome him as such. Not just Philemon, the whole church. Welcome him as a faithful and beloved brother. This is a perfect illustration of what Pastor Josh mentioned last week from last week's passage, that Christ transforms our relationships. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Who's this Aristarchus character? Well, his name's mentioned only briefly in passing, 
a couple of times in the New Testament, but every time he's mentioned, he's alongside Paul suffering for the gospel. So in Acts chapter 19, he's with Paul in the middle of a controversial dust-up. And then in Acts chapter 27, he gets thrown into prison with Paul. He's always at the wrong place at the wrong time or at the right place at the right time. And he's suffering with Paul. And here he is in Colossians, in prison, greeting the Colossians, a faithful brother who labors in the gospel and suffers for the gospel alongside Paul, though he hardly gets recognized in the same way. He's mentioned alongside Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes, welcome him. Oh, the impact of these two words, welcome him. Why? Why are these two words so significant? Why do they matter? They matter because they represent another reconciliation of broken relationships, this time with Paul. You see, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, who was Paul's very first partner on his missionary journey. Barnabas, with Paul, doing ministry together. And on one of these journeys, at one point, Mark joined Barnabas and Paul. And at some point, he deserted them. He abandoned them. And this occasion for Paul a distrust in Mark so that later on in Acts chapter 15 when Barnabas and Paul were on their second missionary journey and Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along with him, Paul was strongly opposed. Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance and Paul said, too soon. Not right now. I don't trust him. He abandoned us the last time we were ministering together. And he was strongly opposed, so strongly opposed that a sharp division arose among these two best of friends, Paul and Barnabas, so that eventually they had to part ways. Barnabas went off with Mark, and Paul went off with Silas. A tragedy, a relationship fractured. And yet, here's Mark serving with Paul, and Paul instructing the Colossians to welcome him. Paul's about to say that Mark has been a great encouragement to him. Behold the power of God to reconcile broken relationships. Verse 11, in Jesus who is called Justice, these are the only men, meaning Mark, Jesus, or Jesus who is called Justice, not the Jesus of Nazareth, different Jesus. Mark, Justice, and uh, who was it? Aristarchus are the only three uh, Christian Jews who are working with Paul here. And they have been, he says, a comfort to me. We don't know really anything about Justice's life, but we do know that he was an encouragement to Paul. And we do know that he was faithful. And that brings great encouragement to us to know that when no one else sees your faithfulness, God does. And it matters. He continues, verse 12, Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. See the heart of Pastor Epaphras. Dear Pastor Epaphras, I love Pastor Epaphras, because he loves his people. Just picture him there with Paul, 
gushing before him, telling him of how much love he has for his people back at Colossae, how much concern he has for them, how much care he has for them. He's worried about them. His affection for them is great. He prays for them. He's always praying for them that they would grow in godliness and be mature and be fully assured in the will of God. Their victory is Epaphras' victory. Their joys are his joys. Their sorrows are his sorrows. And Paul sees this. He sees Epaphras' shoulders sag under the heavy weight of his love for his congregation. He loves them. He loves these people. And Paul is encouraged by this. And he's encouraging the Colossians. He goes out of his way to essentially say, you guys are so blessed with the pastor who loves you. He's after your best. He wants you mature. He's joining me in the same work of warning everyone and teaching everyone so that he might present you, Colossians, mature in Christ. For this very thing, he toils with all the energy that Christ powerfully works within him. Trust him. He's working for your good. Trust him. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention and remind you, Emmaus, that your pastors love you. These men, these brothers that I serve with, love you. They are Epaphrases for you. They want you mature in Christ. We love you. Verse 14. <clears throat> Luke, he says, the beloved physician greets you as does Demas. This name Demas is so haunting. It terrifies me. The name of De Demas terrifies me. And compels me to fall on my face in desperate prayer for faithfulness. Why? Well, we see Demas is mentioned here alongside Luke. Luke, the beloved physician. This is the same Luke that penned the gospel of Luke and Acts. He's a light of the early church. He's a hero. He's a big shot. And here is Demas mentioned alongside him. Mentioned in the same breath as Luke. He's called a fellow soldier at the end of Philemon. He's mentioned alongside the who's who of the early church, rubbing shoulders with the Apostle Paul. He's on a first name basis with Paul. And yet, the last thing we hear about Demas in Scripture is in Paul's second letter to Timothy where he writes this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the present world, has departed me. And gone to Thessalonica. Demas, in love with the present world, has departed me. And gone to Thessalonica. We don't know what in love with this present world means exactly for Demas. But something in Thessalonica appealed to his fleshly desire. And he abandoned Paul. If you would have asked Paul at the time of his writing, Colossians... Chapter 4, do you think Demas, could you picture Demas right now departing you and making a shipwreck of your faith? He would have said no. He's mentioning him alongside Luke. He's calling him a fellow soldier. Whatever it was, Demas 
stopped setting his mind on the things of heaven. It might have been greed for money. It might have been illicit sexual relationship. It might have been idolatry of leisure and self-indulgence. Whatever it was, he stopped setting his mind on the things of heaven and began to set his gaze on the things of earth. He ran so well for so long. But in the end, he made a shipwreck of his faith. This, brothers and sisters, should sober us up. Beware of thinking you are beyond anything. When you hear about brothers and sisters in Christ making a shipwreck of your faith, you bite your tongue before you say, I could never do that. Before you say, I could never see myself doing that. Bite your tongue. Beware of thinking you are beyond anything. Running the first leg of the race means little if you don't finish it. And so the time is short and we need to be diligent. We need to be watchful over our lives and never let up of our pursuit of Christ. He says in verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. We don't know anything about Nympha, but since she's mentioned instead uh, as, the, as the host of the house church instead of her husband, we can conclude that she was probably a widow who was wealthy enough to have a house big enough to have a small church in it. And so, even though we don't know uh, anything about Nympha, her silence is still instructing us. She's teaching us about faithfully giving what you have in service to Christ and His church. And notice also the way that Paul intends for the churches in this area to see themselves as joint partners for the advance of the gospel. They saw themselves ultimately as one holy Catholic, small c Catholic, meaning universal, one holy Catholic apostolic church. They saw themselves as distinct local churches that were all a part of the universal body of Christ. Not sectarian, but genuinely after one another's good. And this is why we prayed at the beginning of our service for faithful churches in our area. It's because we never want to get into the mindset where we are somehow in competition with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not. We're partners in the gospel. We're fellow soldiers with one another. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, greet this, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This last name that we're introduced to is Archippus. Dear Pastor Archippus, holding things down in Colossae while Epaphras is off with Paul, probably getting really tired probably getting really discouraged, Paul goes out of his way to encourage him. He says, be faithful. Stay faithful. You're not forgotten. And then he closes this letter with the blessing, grace be with you. And we shouldn't minimize this importance because it shows that Paul knows, apart from the grace of God, none of these instructions will be heeded. And so as I think about this passage and this book as a whole in relation to... Whoop, in relation to our church, in the moment that we find ourselves in, <clears throat> I've been thinking about what is the, 
the general instruction. What, is, what does God have for us as a church with this book of Colossians as we come to a close? I think I would sum it up like this. Very simply, stay faithful. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to stay faithful. Don't grow weary of basic Christian faithfulness. This is important because we're tired, guys. We, our whole society is tired. We're tired as a church. We're tired as a people. And we need encouragement. We need to come to this assembly to be reminded to stay faithful, to be encouraged, to keep going, keep pressing on, stay faithful, to lock arms, as we're fond of saying, and make sure that we cross over the Jordan into the promised land, making sure that nobody dies on the banks, on the riverbanks before we get across. We need to stay faithful. This means not wearying of transfixing our eyes on the glory of Christ, which is so much of the book of Colossians. It means not growing tired of hearing about the gospel, never growing bored of hearing about our union with Christ, hearing about our record of debt that has been set aside and nailed to the cross. God forbid we ever get bored of hearing that. We're never done. We're never not excited about that. That's what it means to stay faithful. It means not growing lazy or disinterested in the task to grow more and more in the knowledge of God about being hungry and making ourselves hungry if we're not. It means not growing lazy or disinterested. It means not being content with worldliness in our lives. It means not growing weary of devoting ourselves to prayer and evangelism and an urgent way of living in this world. A way that makes the best use of our time. So keep running. Keep being faithful. Keep devoting yourself to Christ. And in the spirit of this devotion to faithfulness, we conclude our time together like we do every week with the meal of communion. This, this sacred Christian meal where we corporately fellowship with one another and with Christ. And in this way, this is important, in this way, when we enjoy this meal together, we recommit ourselves to Christ and to one another. We say to God and to one another, when we take this meal, we are saying to God and to one another, Christ lived for us. Christ died for us. He rose for us. He ascended for us. And He will return for us. In His person and work is all our hope. And we look to Him alone for our righteousness. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're coming and visiting and you're not part of this body of Christ, if you have not forsaken your sin and come to Christ alone, by faith alone, then we would encourage you to remain seated. Not because we don't like you. We are very glad you're here. We want you to be here. But we say all the time that this is a Christian meal. And so rather than pretending like you are a Christian... And rather than pretending like you are a part of Christ's community, we would invite you rather to become one for real. That's what we want. We don't want the, the pretend version. We want the real version. And so Christ is offered to you. And it's a genuine invitation every week. Christ really is offered to you. And He really does turn away none of those who come to Him humbly, who recognize their need for Him. And so we would invite you to come to Christ even as you Watch us come to this table and enjoy this meal. And we would love to introduce you to our friend Jesus if you have any questions about what that looks like. 
ask us after the service. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers here to come up and uh, partake again. We don't have exact aisles, but try to, as you come up to, uh, to receive the elements, return around um, the edge, if you will. Come and take this meal. Let me pray for us and then we'll partake together. Almighty Father, whose dear Son on the night before He suffered instituted the ordinance of His body and blood, mercifully grant that we may receive it thankfully in remembrance of Jesus Christ our Lord, who in these holy mysteries gives us a pledge of eternal life and who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.